Hello and welcome back to part four of the SAEM podcast series, Current and Novel Approaches to Sepsis Detection in the Emergency Department, which is sponsored in part by Beckman Coulter and B.U. Miriu. I'm Rob Ehrman from Wayne State, and we have three outstanding guests today. We have first Dr. Fahim Gurgis, who is a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Florida College of Medicine. He is a PI on innumerable studies, sepsis and septic shock. His The main goal of his research is to define the pathophysiologic role of lipids and lipoproteins in organ failure and recovery from sepsis with the hope of developing more targeted and precision treatments. He has multiple NIH awards, and he is also the co-director of the University of Florida KL2 program. Welcome, Dr. Gerges. We also have Dr. Kylie Graham, who is a PhD and assistant professor in computer and information science and engineering at the University of Florida. Her lab develops computational tools that integrate large-scale genomic data to identify mechanisms driving human disease. Their research facilitates learning the biological basis of a number of diseases with the goal of ultimately finding novel treatments and early-stage risk factors. And last but certainly not least, we have Dr. Lauren Black, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at University of Florida in Jacksonville. She has an MPH from the Harvard School of Health, and she is currently funded by a K-23 award from NIGMS, and she loves spending time with her dog and her husband and her children. So welcome, everybody, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Yeah. All right. So in episode four is what we're taping today. And so the general theme of this podcast has been looking at novel detection strategies, treatment strategies for sepsis. And we've been talking about biomarkers. Episode four is a little more technical and maybe a little more statistical based. And so I think a lot of our listeners, a lot of emergency physicians are familiar with the idea of biomarkers, right? We have lactate, troponin, BNP. Usually we're using them by themselves. Sometimes we're using them together, maybe white blood cell count, ESR, CRP, and a lactate kind of putting them together. But I think with sort of developments in modern medicine, especially with omics, we're dealing with sometimes sets of biomarkers that could be dozens, hundreds, or in some cases with like with genomics, thousands of biomarkers. And so the big overarching question that I wanted to talk about today is this idea of how do we pare down these high dimensional data sets into something that's sort of useful on an everyday basis. And I think also a lot of our listeners are familiar with this idea of false discovery rate, which is loosely this idea that if you start looking at many, many, many biomarkers, making lots of comparisons, by chance, you're going to just discover some associations with your outcome. And the really big question is, how do we know if it's signal or noise? And so maybe as a starting point for you, Dr. Graham, I was wondering if you could kind of tell us a little bit about some of the statistical techniques that get used in analysis of high dimensional data. We hear a lot about machine learning and its application to omics. So maybe you could start by telling us what is machine learning and how do you use it in these settings? What is machine learning? So machine learning is helping us see patterns in data. If you want to simplify it down to the most basic components, right? I know I have something, I have a bunch of information, I want to understand something about it. And so I use machine learning and statistical tools to help me figure that out. 
And I really can't say this enough. So much of it really depends on what kind of data you have and what kind of biases you have in your data. So when we take really high dimensional data, like omics data, in machine learning, we'll generally talk about the samples versus the features. So for omics data, a gene would be your feature or a region of the genome would be your feature. And the sample would come from, for example, a patient. And we have so many more features than we have patients. And it's so important to figure out which of the correlations we're seeing between groups of patients have anything to do with the questions that we're asking. So most of the statistical techniques that we're doing for scaling down the dimensionality of the data are really, you need to know what questions you're going to be asking in the first place. We have spent a lot of time figuring out what kinds of biases are common in omics data and being able to reduce down the data without losing that important signal. So we know that different things interact with each other. They tend to change together so we can scale them down into one feature that we're looking at. And generally, we call these gene sets or pathways. It's very common to do something called principal component analysis, which is looking for orthogonal, so completely perpendicular to each other, patterns in data to be able to say, okay, so these different features are driving this one pattern in the data. They tend to change together. That means that we can, instead of thinking of each one independently, we can think of them as one single component and do analysis based on that. And PCA is not new. This is something we've been using for a long time. (laughs) And there are lots of different types of dimensional scaling like this that we use that work really, really well in this space. So thinking ahead. (laughs) That makes sense. And, And when you talk about the thinking ahead, would it be fair to say that a lot of work goes in on the front end to... I guess you said this, what questions to ask, but is that a way to, in some senses, like guard against this just sort of, I guess in the most negative connotation is just, you know, throw a bunch of things up against the dartboard and see what sticks? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, basically that's a large concern that I have is oftentimes when people come in without any machine learning background and they don't realize that a lot of these decisions made very early on in the processing of the data. I mean, things like where are you getting your data from? can have a huge impact on what your model is going to tell you. And I'm sure we'll spend some more time talking about this. But it's also the question of like, do I have a disease versus not disease? So this is what I would call a supervised prediction problem. Or do I just have a bunch of groups or, you know, a bunch of patients with some disease and I don't know what's going on with this disease, then I would do what we call unsupervised analysis, where I'm saying, okay, machine learning model, tell me what groups of patients do you see in this data? Are there subtypes of this disease or are there, you know, whatever it is. And again, this is where it becomes important because the model will come back and tell you the strongest signal of separation in your data. That doesn't mean that it's finding the signal of your disease of interest. It just means that it's finding the biggest thing that's happening, right? The way that we prepare that data is so important beforehand. It sounds like... Maybe I shouldn't lay awake at night being afraid that when I'm reading papers where they're using these high dimensional data sets and have found some associations, if it's done well and the idea is developed clearly with a priori hypothesis, I shouldn't worry that people are just finding sort of spurious associations primarily rather than something that may be clinically useful. 
Yeah, I wouldn't stress out about that too much. (laughs) (laughs) There are some things that we can do. So for example, say I have a data set of maybe 100 patients. I would consider that very small, right? But that's a lot of patients for, you know, a clinical trial or similar. But what I can do is go to the genomic repositories and find data for a couple hundred thousand patients and add that in. And this is providing, in statistics generally, they'll call it a background model. But in machine learning, we just call it more data. (laughs) So that tells us, is this variation unique to this disease or this question that we're asking? Is this something we just see, you know, in different human populations, maybe age or sex or, you know, geographic location? There are a lot of other things that we know have an impact on this. So we can bring in data that doesn't really seem like it's relevant to the model. And that can help stabilize the model, basically make it much more adept at finding an answer to the question you're asking without getting caught up in the biases of missing data. Another thing we often do is use things like regulatory networks where we know, I mean, there's been tons of studies looking at individual cells across different organisms, humans, different tissue types, all kinds of things, looking to see, okay, how does you know gene A interact with gene B, interact with gene C? We can take all of that information, that network together and say, okay, Given our data, we're seeing these single feature changes, but let's look at them from a network perspective. And that, again, can provide a lot more consistency into the model. So then I can confidently say, okay, this model was trained. We got the signature from one data set, but it's going to work very well on a new data set as well. That I feel fairly comfortable about these days, too. There's plenty of data out there for most questions we want to answer. Oh, okay. Okay. That's interesting. And it's, again, it all sounds, I lay awake thinking about a lot of things at night, but it, it all sounds reassuring. And not, not that I really thought people were just kind of searching for spurious correlations, but there's a lot more thought and preparation that goes into generating questions and then collecting data. And it's not like typing a prompt into chat GPT or something like that. That's always good to know and hear an expert describe it eloquently like you did. Another question I have, and, and sort of let me open it up to Dr. Black and Dr. Gerges here too, is just you talk about some of the prep work that goes into thinking about the questions and then thinking about the data sets that you might have or want. How does someone who's like you who's got statistician is probably a, a, an under, not the right description for what you do, but like a, how do you work with clinicians to set up sort of like the data pipelines that you need and that kind of thing? if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I can jump in here. Hi, everyone. It's Lauren. So I think when you're working with somebody who's a computational expert like Kylie, it really is more of a team sport with the computational expert and the domain expert or the clinician, someone like any of us in the room. And then I think it's really important to involve your computational expert and really create this team early on where y'all think about your question and then think about exactly like like we've been talking about is, is what data are you using to answer your question? And then really, when you think about data sets, you have just a really wide variety. You can have billing and coding data, which has a, a ton of limitations, although is super, is more readily available in some cases. But you know, if you're asking a time series data question or something, it's definitely flawed. Billing and coding data also requires people to like insert ICD codes. So you're, you're talking about a human component there that can insert some other biases and flaws. And then there's EHR data, and numerous other data sources. And so I think you're picking that data source early on. And I think a lot of that requires a fair amount of domain expertise. And then you're really also working 
with the computational expert to clean that data and talk about what features you think should be put in there and how we should clean them and et cetera, et cetera. You know, something as simple as making SOFA scores and then adding other lab values. But you're also doing stuff like that clinicians know about, for example, saying, what if people are using different kinds of troponins? Like there's high sensitivity troponins and regular troponins, and you're feeding these all into the model as maybe like a cardiac biomarker, but you really need to be thinking about those things ahead of time and not just throwing every troponin into the model, for example, without some kind of statistical nuance to make make sure they're comparable. That's the long-winded answer. The short-winded answer is it's really a team sport. And I think the focus is less on what methodology you're using with regards to what specific unsupervised or supervised clustering method you're using, because the computational expertise will really help you figure that out. And more, what data are you using and what are you doing to that data to answer your question? And is your data even appropriate to answer answer the question? Because sometimes I think that answer is a, a great big no, unfortunately. And you don't want to find that out well into working on a problem, though we think we've all done that before. So I think that's my two cents on, on that question. One nice thing, too, about working with the computational folks early is that we do automate everything And so, for example, I'm sitting here listening to Lauren talk about, you know, where do we get these ICD codes? How are we getting all this information? And one thing I see often with clinical data is misspellings, for example. It's pretty easy to automate fixing that. And then it saves you a lot of headaches down the line when you ran your statistical analysis and you came back and said, some drug works really well, but only when you spell it this way. And I've literally seen this happen before multiple times. (laughs) But then the other thing is like, I don't have the domain expertise to say, I'm sorry, troponin, right? Like that there's different types of that. I would never know that they're related. So it's easy for me to mess up or my team to mess up in the pipeline and how we're treating these. We would never catch that they're the same thing. So it's so important to just like talk really often and work closely together. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's one of the biggest lessons that I learned painfully early on in research careers that, you know, talking to your methodology and analytic experts early before you start collecting data is, can't stress how important that is. I mean, nothing is worse than looking through charts and whatever, collecting data only to find out that you've missed some key piece. And now you have to go back and look at a thousand charts or something like that. But something else that that I was wondering about, and Lauren, you kind of touched on it, is this lack of reliability or potential biases in, in some of these large existing data sets and the, the biases that exist. For example, there's so many examples, but you know, sometimes race and ethnicity sometimes get coded poorly or incompletely or any number of other things. Like how do you account, how do you check for sort of these inaccuracies and know they're there? And obviously I guess you, there are methods you would take to try to correct them, but I'm sure you're outstanding at your job, but I, you know, I would say like, it's, can we find every flaw? And like, how does this, I, I don't know, in my mind, these things are, you know, you have these large data sets and it's just becoming sort of like these exponential growth of potential bias. I don't know. I guess I wonder if you think that's how you handle that. And, you know, if it's a problem, how much of a problem and what techniques are out there to address these things? Yeah. And I'm going to let Kylie fill in on what, what techniques, et cetera, but I definitely think it is a huge problem. I think Unfortunately, to a certain extent, my personal opinion is I think some of them 
are not fixable. And it's just, you need to cautiously interpret your findings in light of being aware of that bias. You know, I think ethnicity is a great example. I think that's that's often captured in, in a flawed manner and race as well. This is often captured based on, you know, kind of somebody's perception at triage rather than asking the patient themselves. And I think you see a, a lot of those problems. And I think you can see that when things don't reflect what you would expect them to. I think another good example is IV fluids. I feel like those are often not captured well that's relevant to sepsis is how many liters have actually been held before you go order the first one. How often are you really going to backfill in that they got a liter with EMS and then, you know, a second liter when they got to your recess bay and then, you know, maybe an hour later you order a third one and it's very possible that in the EHR that looks like one liter of fluid rather than looking like the three liters of fluid they got. I, to a certain extent, think that is what it is. And there's just a huge trade-off when you come from big data has amazing opportunities and hypothesis generating opportunities. I just think it it is never going to have the same degree of consistency that prospectively collected data will with that regards, but then those data points have much smaller ends. And so I think you just need to really be cautious about how you interpret your findings in light of those biases. And then I'll let Kylie fill in on on her opinion and some statistical techniques that maybe can, can help there. So yes, this is a big problem. <laughs> Let's put it this way. If you give me sequence data, I can tell you how approximately within a few hours, how long it took for that sample to have been taken to have been flash frozen or put on the sequencer. There is that much of a change. So like someone leaves a box of samples and forgets to you know keep them frozen, that has a big effect on the data. You're, the tissues start to break down almost immediately. Race and ethnicity is also a hard one because these are socioeconomic things. These are not genomic factors, right? So there is genomic ancestry. It's actually apt timing. My lab just put out a preprint on a method for adjusting for genomic ancestry because we know, I mean, population genomics is a whole field, right? So we know a lot about the spread of humans across the globe based on variations in the genome which means that those variations are in your everyday population coming into the clinic and they're not always going to be a very simple problem. I mean, most people do not come, you know, you know you're not having someone who's 100% finished walking in, right? Well, you do, but most people have some kind of what we call admixture, which means you have ancestry from multiple human populations. Humans aren't that different, right? We're all very, very similar together. But there are some variations that are more common in certain populations than others. If you only sample from, for example, the UF clinical population, you're going to get a very different set of patients than you do if you go to, you know, I did my PhD in UC Santa Cruz. The the population there is just very different, right? So what we do in general, I, I always try to tell people, like, the more data you get, the less likely you are to have these kinds of problems because the more likely you are, to be picking up more of human variation, more of sampling variation, more of anything that can change between the samples. But the other thing that we can do is bring in external knowledge. So I can bring in population genomics databases and say, okay, here are the variants that we're finding that are associated with our disease. Do we see these variants in all human populations or are they only present in a specific group? If they're only in a specific group, chances are really darn good that it's not that only that specific group gets this disease, it's that our patient population that we're testing comes from this group. And so we happen to be identifying 
their factors that are most common with the disease. Or another one I see very often is you get, for example, 80% one population, 5% another, and a mixture of everything else. Well, that 5% just happens to be the more aggressive form of disease or whatever it is, one group, not the other. And so what the model will pick out is variations based on their ancestry rather than based on the disease. This is the kind of thing that my lab spends a ton of time thinking about. Like, how do we make sure that we're not a different technician was on the sequencer that day creating the samples and we can pick up that signal? We can actually use really simple models. A lot of the time, just regression can work really well at pulling out the signal of this specific technical bias or this specific bias in the way we're sampling the population versus disease-related things. But again, that's one of those things that I try really hard when I'm looking at results from any model to be very negative. Like, where could this go wrong? What could have caused this to give me this result that has nothing to do with the disease of interest that we have? So just being very suspicious of that. But then also, again, it loops back to that, get as much data as you possibly can, because with 100,000 patients, you're far less likely to be, over. it's called overfitting to something that isn't true, right? It's fitting to what it sees in the samples that it has. That's what the model is doing. That doesn't mean that it's true for the disease. I mean, we'll see this really often where there's lots of small studies on, for example, sepsis, where, again, I say small is like a few hundred. I know the scales really vary. But you can take the subtypes from sepsis from each of these studies, and if you put all of the data together, all of a sudden you see that they were all seeing similar but different aspects of the disease. There's overlaps in those subtypes or they're finding slightly different subtypes. Well, again, you put all of those samples together and a much clearer picture appears. Yeah, this is also interesting. And in some levels, some of these problems seem like they're maybe intractable and it's sort of both encouraging and in some senses discouraging. You talk about some of these, you know, like large genomic databases where you have hundreds of thousands of samples. And then, you know, we think about sepsis where we have substantially smaller samples. And sort of Fahim, I guess I would be interested in kind of what you think about some of this and, you know, in the space of the work that you do and that you've done, I think you're, you're, you're definitely the most senior clinical researcher here, but sort of how do you think about some of these aspects? You Can know, I interject and, really quick? Yeah. Yeah. So the thing to remember about these big databases is that even though those patients have nothing to do with sepsis, they're still informing our understanding of sepsis. So they're still helping us learn more about what's going on with sepsis, even though those patients did not have sepsis themselves. Just keep it in mind. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to come back to that, but I want to, let me see what, if we have time, let's come back to that. But I'm going to see what get Fahim in on this discussion too. I think our work can speak to that to some degree as well. Just kind of getting to the root of the data bias issue and some of the points they've, they've both already said really well, so I'm not going to repeat them, but I think knowing what you want to do with your data in the first place and consulting the experts at the very beginning cannot be overstated. I think it's such an important piece of figuring out essentially what your results are going to look like at the end, right? And and so collecting the right information at the beginning is super important. And I think when you, you know, you look at it either hundreds of patients or you're talking hundreds of thousands of patients, you know, you have less of this issue when you get into the hundreds of thousands of patients. But I think when you're talking about a few hundred, most of the work that I do is with a, like a few hundred patients because a lot of it is a combination of clinical data and biology and now getting to sort of genomics and lipidomics and those kinds of approaches. I think it all comes down to reproducibility. And 
I think the thing that you, not all of it, but I think that one way that you can really know that you're onto something is if you can really reproduce your findings. And that's obviously a big part of grant applications now is how are you going to show what you've shown and then show it again? And can other people reproduce those same findings using the same methods? And so I think it's important that methodology is clear when you put papers together and that you really think through it really well. And I think the other thing I would say about the data is I don't think that Lauren and probably not even Kylie emphasize enough how much time you really have to dedicate towards cleaning your data and making sure it's good. And all of the meetings and the discussions with consultants and the computational experts that are doing that work, it takes a lot of time to really get into the data to see where could there be errors, where is this accurate, to the point where I can really say, okay, now I can analyze it. Most people know, but I think on a current project we're working on, spent three years just getting to the point where we could really analyze the data with some degree of certainty that what we're looking at is, is really representative and it's accurate. Three years, that's a that's definitely a labor of love. <laughs> it is. But I think that's interesting to hear, and I think it's good to get that message out is that we'd all would like to do something really quickly, but it highlights a good point is that it fits nicely, which is sort of the theme and what Kylie had said initially was that, you know, so much of successful research is being slow and methodical and spending the time to do things right, collect quality data, you know, doing whatever amount of data cleaning quality checks that you can on the front end so that you can move forward and be more confident with your answers. I mean, I really do think it is a team sport. The analyst I work most closely with, Charlotte, who I think I at least just should say hi to, even though she's not here because she just had a baby like last week. But I mean, my husband joked that I talked to her more than I talked to him when we were cleaning my KL2 data, just because it was a constant discussion of down to every variable. And it really is a team effort. And I think going in as a clinician, you should really understand how valuable that partnership is with your computational team. And I think to add to that, I think taking sort of a consensus approach a little bit to where there's issues, where there might be issues with your data. I know like the experts, the group of experts that I work with all the time and working with Lauren and Kylie and others, it's you always want input when you're not sure about what you might be seeing in your data and how to handle it. And so I think it's it's great to have people to sort of bounce those things off of. All right, this is going great. I think I could talk about this ad infinitum. I think we're, we're getting close on time. I did want to go back to Kylie's point about data from patients that are not septic informs studies of septic patients. And I know that's probably not a, it's not like an easy one sentence pat answer, but can you expound a little bit? Yeah. So think about this. All of human variation, all of those technical biases, things going wrong in the clinic, things going right, but slightly differently, all of these things have an impact on the data that we're getting. And that's going to be true for every single study that happens all the time. These are predictable things. So one, I can get rid of a lot of technical bias by pulling in all of this data because that variation will appear across the spectrum. But two, I mean, sepsis is a unique disease, right? It has very negative impacts. It's hard to treat. It's it's awful. But it's still happening in human bodies that are doing all of the human functions that we do normally. So all of these things are ongoing this entire time that we're getting this data. So bringing in more information, one, for just in machine learning in general, the more data I have, the simpler the model I can use. But really, I mean, these are all people. They're healthy people that are a contrast to the people that have sepsis or septic shock. 
And so it's kind of providing us this really nice baseline of what is normal in a human being. Got it. Got it. Okay. And that makes a lot of sense. And so I guess the follow-up question and then, and then maybe the final question and can get everybody's input, but the overarching question is, you know, how much data does one need to use machine learning? That's probably not exactly the right way to describe it. And, and it's sort of vague, but necessarily so like, you know, people that don't maybe think is a machine learning approach appropriate for my data, or should I be thinking about it? If that kind of makes sense. Yeah. I wish there was an easy answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can, can I jump in for a second? Yeah. I mean, I think you have to know what you're trying to do with it, right? And I think for most people, they're going to sort of start with, I mean, I think for clinicians, right? This is what this talk is for. I think people are trying to figure out something. They have a question that they're asking. And a lot of times an iterative approach makes a lot of sense. But I think that this discussion is really about how do you figure out kind of what's going on with these sepsis patients, right? How do we figure out how do we interpret biomarkers and, and how do we predict and get more of an insight into the disease processes? I think with multiomics and a lot of the big data sources that we have, machine learning approaches make a lot of sense because there are things that you just can't iterate, right? There are things that you can't really necessarily see relationships. And when you get to this degree of data, that's when it really makes a lot of sense. And even when you're using just clinical data with hundreds of thousands of observations, maybe not biology, I think that's a little bit, I think it's still something that can give you insights that you wouldn't necessarily have otherwise. But I think if you can ask and answer your question with standard statistical approaches, to me, that makes a lot of sense too. And so I think that the idea of consulting the experts and also knowing exactly what you're trying to get out of the study is where you decide, okay, what approach do I use, right? Because essentially it's, it's really sort of an approach question. That's just yeah. my, my clinical view. <laughs> I completely agree. I, I don't think there's an easy answer. I think one sort of simple way to think about it is data can be quote unquote big and, you know, big data is obviously like a problematic term, but data can be quote unquote big, either horizontally or vertically. So you can have a smaller number of patients and have a ton of data about those patients. And, th and that's where you see a lot of like Fahim's multiomics work, Kylie's multiomics work, et cetera. You can, you can have a lot of data on a smaller number of patients, but data can also be large vertically where you have like a bunch of patients, but maybe less data on each of them. And I think that's my new one. I will say most universities and research institutes are going to have a biostatistics and computational biology core of some kind. And it's usually good to go have a 10, 15 minute conversation with them about what are you interested in? What are you doing? Because I can tell you that I do anywhere from regression models or simple, simple correlations to generative deep learning models just depending on what kind of question we're trying to answer. All right. Well, I think we're getting close on time. And that was a very great discussion. As I said, I think I could talk about this for another few hours, but I want to be respectful of your guys' time. You obviously have lots of cool stuff going on in your own research careers. So I think we will wrap up episode four. Thank you guys all for joining us and making a great conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. 